All righty. I joked over the last couple of days, because it's been, uh, I got home at nine o'clock last night. Um, I joked over the last couple of days with a couple of guys, uh, with the guys in Sydney. I said, the, the less preparation time you have as a preacher, the more charismatic you get. <laughs> Which is kind of spontaneity. So we're just going to see. This, uh, this one's probably not quite as well cooked as a normal Sondergeld salmon, but who knows? I'm uh, entrusting uh, myself to the Holy Spirit for uh, what he wants to do today. So uh, Mark 12, we're up to, and we're going to read verse 1 to 12. So if you've got your Bible, you can read it in there, or you can read it on the screen. Uh, And Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. This is really common, all right? This would happen lots and lots of times in Galilee, um, People would actually set up a farm, basically. They'd be an absent kind of landowner. They'd get some tenants in, basically leaseholders in a sense, to work the farm. And what would happen is they would have to give a cut of the proceeds to the owner, which is not that different to what actually happens in our day when people lease farms in a sense. They give a cut of the the fruits that come out of it. Um, When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him... And beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Thank you very much. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Wicked tenants, aren't they? Wicked, wicked tenants. I mean, we've been chasing the stockos for a while. This is worse than the stockos, isn't it? It's like they've been on the run for eight years. These guys, for some reason, are on the run in the landowner's territory, all right? They're beating up his people and killing them. Verse 6, he still, he had still one other. Listen to the pathos in this statement, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. Why? Because the son's an heir, right? The son's connected to the father and that means he actually has legal rights. So at some level, he's kind of going, they're going to respect him if I send him. Uh, But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Dumb criminal logic, right? And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvellous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, the religious people, but they feared the people for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. In Mark 12, I think what we see here is we actually see the nature of pride, the effects of pride and God's indomitable province here's the first one the nature of pride one of the um kind of themes running through the bible is that god often refers to his people the people of israel as a vineyard Uh, you can go to isaiah chapter 5 and see that and the people in charge of the vineyard obviously the tenants are the uh the religious leaders of the day and what you can actually see here about the religious leaders of the day is who are they actually concerned about are they concerned about the vineyard or are they concerned about something else they're concerned about who? Themselves. <laughs> All right? So this is what we're doing here, the nature of pride. 
is to be concerned about yourself. That's what it is. And uh, these guys are running a vineyard where they're concerned about themselves. There's a particularly um, probing, I mean, I'd really encourage you to read it. Uh, Ezekiel 34 is an amazing chapter about how the people that God put in charge of looking after his sheep kind of actually were people that kind of started to devour his sheep. They started to devour his people. They didn't discharge their duties well. Listen to this. Uh, This is in uh, Ezekiel 34, uh, verse 8. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds, the leaders of my people, have not searched for my sheep but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm against the shepherds. I'm against the leaders of my people and I'll require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. Listen to what he says. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths. You see that? The job of the shepherds in Israel was to feed the sheep, not to feed on the sheep. (laughs) All right? And... Some of you actually know, like you've been in churches where there's leaders in the church that feed on the sheep rather than feed the sheep. And it's never good. It's never helpful. And it would be our goal and our objective in this church to always feed you, not to feed on you. But you see what's actually happening here. For someone who feeds on rather than feeds, they've become the one that's in the centre. They've become the one that's the most significant in their own minds and this is what's reflected in um, C.S. Lewis's quote here from the moment a creature becomes aware of God as God and itself as self the terrible opportunity of choosing God or self as centre is open to it at this very moment in time you and I are either committing it or about to commit it or repenting it now here's the thing the tenants put themselves in the centre of their reality and then everyone else who came up against them was in competition with them which is why they had to beat them up and kill them and get them out of the way because those people were threatening to take themselves out of the center of their own life does that make sense and that's what pride does see pride puts people in competition with each other it's not comparative it's competitive that's what pride is people are not when pride gets involved people are not content with an equal amount of someone else they always want to have a little bit more and you can trace greed and selfishness. You can trade, I think, you can uh, trace every sin back to the sin of pride, the sin of uh, humanity put them, putting themselves in the centre of their universe. You see, other sins, you can get a couple of people together who are really greedy and they can unite in their greed. You never get people uniting in pride, <laughs> all right? Because it's competitive. People are against each other. It actually breeds hostility between people and between us and God. And that's what you can see here in this parable. Pride makes us enemies of each other and pride makes us enemies of God. There's a beautiful uh, scripture in uh, Romans 5, verse 6 to 11. It says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Jesus died for the ungodly. That was all of us at some point in time. And maybe it's still some of us where we haven't actually asked Jesus for forgiveness and turned to him. You can. <laughs> it's free. Um, but all of us are in this state. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Jesus died on the cross for us. 
Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Listen to this. For if while we were, st- while we were what? Enemies. That's what pride does. <laughs> it makes people enemies. And specifically, it makes you an enemy of God. And it's no surprise that humans wanted to kill Jesus. Because when you're proud and when you've got yourself in the centre and Jesus comes along and threatens that and he says, no, you need to not have yourself in the centre, you need to have me in the centre, you either give in to him or you need to kill him. That's, those are pretty much your only options because he's not going to let you have half and half. He either wants to be king over your life or you're going to have to kill him. Now, there's lots of ways that people kill him. I mean, obviously, they killed him physically at some point in time. Uh, 2,000 years ago. But people can kill him philosophically, can't they? They can kill him by the things that they say. They can write him off in their heads. And maybe you've done that, where you just kind of go, I write him off in my head, or I don't read that page of the Bible because I don't want to have to do what that says because Christ is pressing on me and he's saying, I want to be king over your life. And hopefully for those who have been here enough, you've seen this note from Mark, is that Jesus and Mark... The way that he talks about Jesus, he keeps pressing you and he says, king is the only option. He's either king or you kill him. He won't just be a nice person that you are friends with. There's nothing in the middle. Jesus won't let you be in the middle. He's either got to be king or you've got to kill him and find some way to get him out of your life. Now, some of you at this point might think, and I I hope there's some of you thinking this, That is a really stupid thing to make yourself an enemy of God. Anyone with me on that? It'd be like, I mean, we were at a uh, pub on Friday night and they had bouncers there, right? Now, if you were like a four foot five dweeb male, there's none here that are like that, so I don't mean to offend anyone, but if you were a four, four foot five dweeb male, you'd be really dumb to actually pick a fight and become an enemy of a guy six foot ten and about five foot wide, wouldn't it? You with me? But that's really, really stupid. Who knows that people actually do that? Yeah, they do, right? Why do they do it? Because they're proud. Proud people are idiots. <laughs> In the true sense of the word. I don't say that as an insult, I say that as a descriptive thing. They're idiots. They do really dumb things. They're kind of a bit insane. Have you, has anyone ever noticed that? But they just do dumb stuff. You just go, what are you doing that for? That doesn't make any sense at all. And they're just going, makes complete sense to me. And you just go, not to the other 100,000 people that live in Toowoomba. You know? But they're kind of going, no, well, it does. It does. It makes complete sense. Because the essence of pride is actually insanity. Why? Because you can never, ever be in the center of the universe. Never. Ever. There's only one who's in the center of the universe and that's God and he's never going to get pushed out by you. So the fact that you would actually have moments and I would have moments where we just kind of go, nah, I'm going to squeeze in. You're not squeezing in. He's not giving up his spot. It's never going to happen. But you end up in this crazy kind of insanity and I end up in this crazy kind of insanity where you just kind of go, what the heck am I doing? What a dumb thing to do that I think I could be in the center of the universe. It's like me flying on the plane out of Sydney last night. You get up at 20,000 feet looking down on Centrepoint Tower and the Harbour Bridge and the Opera House and you just go, this is like the dumbest thing that you could ever think is to think I could be in the centre. I'm an ant. 
at best. I'm a speck on earth. And I think I can be in the center of the universe. Now, I've got a diagram for you. Because this message, some of you go, well, this is a bit depressing, right? But it's not actually, okay? Because it's a really sucky place to be in when you're proud. You just think it's good. And it's actually a really peaceful place to be in and a really healthy place to be in to be humble. All right? Here's my diagram for you. It's a bit hard to read, maybe. On the left, right, it's kind of the difference between centripetal and centrifugal. Let's start with the left. You know what pride is? Pride is when you go in the center. Do you know what happens when you go in the center? Everyone else has to serve you. God and other people, everyone has to serve you. Okay? And if they don't, watch out. (laughs) Do you get what I'm saying? Because I'm going to fight you to make you serve me. And you can see the problem there is that's actually a centripetal force where the force is actually moving toward the center. So when someone's proud, the force of everything at that point is actually pushing toward the center. And if people don't comply, you can see why if you get two proud people together, they just can really rub each other up the wrong way. Has anyone ever been in that situation where you've seen that? Both of you guys are just really arrogant right now and that's why you're fighting each other. Have you noticed it's really hard to fight with a humble person? Has anyone ever noticed that? It's just like, like you know, you're criticising for something, yeah, it's probably true. It's like, Hang on, no, 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 we're having a dust up here. You know, but it kind of doesn't happen. Now have a look on the right hand side. If you put God in the centre of your life, The force there is centrifugal. It's always spreading outwards. Why? You know why? Because that is the force that exists at the centre of the whole universe in the Trinity. You cannot stop that. You should go back. I mean, if you didn't hear it, go back and listen to one of the messages early on on Mark called the irrepressible reality. You see, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit in the Trinity serve each other all the time they're always other centered so when you put god in the center what's going to happen you're actually going to get in sync with the reality of the universe you know i said to someone one of the guys we were um i was with over the last couple of days i said you know what unselfishness is going to win it's going to win it's going to win do you hear me it's going to win it's always going to win and the thing is you sit there and you kind of go all i see is selfishness in the world maybe i see so much of it and selfishness seems to beat unselfishness all the time well you know what the center the core of the whole of the universe is the trinity and the trinity is selfless and that's why selflessness is going to win you could be in the most brutal dark selfish place and you could have hope why because that's not the center of the universe Because what's the centre of the universe is the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit giving themselves to each other all of the time. If you put you in the centre, you're going to get really needy. You're going to try and pull other people into your vortex. You're going to fight with people. You're going to argue with people. It even comes down to the fact that you're going to kill people like's happened in this parable here. If you're in the centre, you need to protect it. You need to fortify yourself. But if you put the irrepressible reality of the whole universe in the center, everyone else is going to get love from you. 
because that's how it works. That's how the Trinity works. They put each other in the center and love comes out. They don't put themselves in the center. Do you see that? And I'll just suggest to you at this point in time, if you want to find where pride is in your life, I'll just recommend that you um, look for relational difficulties that you've got. And probably, uh, you'll probably find some trace elements of pride kicking around in there. Okay? Now, you can still have conflict with humble people. Clearly. Because that's happening here in this parable, isn't it? Because at the end, the church leaders want to kill Jesus. That's, technically, that's a conflict. <laughs> All right? You with me on that? It's, it's like, if you want to kill someone, you've probably got a relational problem. But Jesus is pretty humble, but he's pressing them in a direction they don't want to go. So it is possible. But let's, um, let's just be careful with that for us, okay? And let's, let's not be too quick to assume that we've, uh, we've got a claim. All right, number two, the effects of pride. Let me read through this. They took him, they beat him, they sent him away empty-handed, and he said to them, and he sent to them another servant, they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully, and he sent another, and they killed him. And so, with many others, some they beat and some they killed. This is the bit I want you to focus on. He still had one other, a beloved son. Now you can assume some things. I'm going to get to this later, but I hope that you're starting to think, what is the character and the nature of the, the father here? What, what is he actually like? What, what is he doing? Like he's he sent multiple people, hasn't he? Like he could have just sent like a legion of soldiers or something after the first one, couldn't he? But he keeps sending them. They keep getting beaten up and killed and then at the end of it he sends his son. Interesting. He still had one other a beloved son, finally he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. You know what I want to, um, actually I'll just read the next sentence too, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. You see, pride, there's a couple of effects that pride has. One of them is that pride actually corrupts reason. You see, the tenants think that maybe they think the owner's dead and they just think, right, here comes his son, if we take him out, we get to keep it. And there's some kind of suggestion culturally that um, if there's an unclaimed property, it's kind of first in, best rest <laughs> at that point. All right? But even the fact that they think we can just take this guy out, no one's going to know, and no one's going to squeal out of everyone who's a tenant in this uh, vineyard. Do you get what I'm saying? There's, there's, just, there's an issue going on with their logic and how they're thinking and how they're reasoning things. And this is actually what sin does to people. It turns people into idiots, which is why um, sometimes, I, I don't know, have you ever seen criminals like on the TV? They just, they seem to be going really well and then they just make a really dumb mistake and they get caught with it. Do you know that kind of thing? You know, it kind of shows up in uh, crime fighting shows. Where it's just like, why did you do that? Because sin and pride turns you into, into an idiot. All right? It turns you into a fool in terms of the way that you actually think. You see, the tenants here, what they actually think is if they kill the owner, they get to own the vineyard. The church leaders think if they kill God, they can be God. 
Do you hear that? And that's why we kill God. If we kill him in our own hearts, the way that we think about him, if we want to, there's a lot of people aggressively against God's existence. And I, I, I expect, <laughs> here's an outlandish comment, I expect that someday the absolute ludicrous nature of a godless evolutionary process will just be seen in all its disglory. Because, I mean, I was even thinking about that last night, sitting in seat 10A on the window, looking down on creation, I just think, really? You know, you've got all the intellect and the design and everything that goes into the, the Harbour Bridge and the architects and the construction people going into the Opera House, and you want to say everything else, which is far more complex than any of those, just happened? That's, that's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous that that would happen. And I think one day, I remember reading it in... Has anyone here ever read Dilbert? I got, I got a Dilbert book. And uh, one of uh, Scott Adams's predictions in this Dilbert book is that the evolutionary theory is going to be disproved in his lifetime. And people know it. Like, you look at it and you just go, that's ridiculous. That is ridiculous. But this is the nature of pride, folks. The nature of pride is let's get rid of God and then we can be God. And it's by nature foolish and illogical and you've got to believe and just I want to say something that you're just going to need to think about you might need to think about it at home too all right and one of the guys when I said it to him in Sydney he goes do you say that sort of stuff in church (laughs) yeah I do and he goes because that makes my head hurt when you say that stuff I have to think about it do you know listen to this I think pride in the universes in the universe introduces logical fallacies all over the place. What do I mean? Pride sows irrationality all over the place in our universe. In your relationships, in the world, in the city, in the culture, it's just sowing. When pride operates, it keeps sowing logical fallacies and irrationality around the place. It makes wise people idiots. And we can see the sum of human history is actually an attempt to get rid of God. But I want to stop here talking about pride specifically and I want to, and the effect that it has on reason and I want you just to think about the effect that it has on relationship. Let's go back to what Jesus says the Father in this story does. What he says, what he thinks. He had still one other, a beloved son. There's almost this forlorn kind of feeling in the father, isn't it? It's like, they'll respect him. I'll respect him. I really love this son and I'll send him and they'll respect him. He's, he's the only one left. He had one other. Do you see that? There's no one left. All he's got left is one son. The son. The only son. Surely they will listen to him. And what does human pride do to this relationship between the father and the son? It breaks it. You see that? It's good for us to pause. Because you don't get how good that relationship is. You don't get that. You get that a little bit. Like if you think about the relationship between the father and the son, Jesus, you have no idea how close that relationship is at the end of the day. 
and our pride broke that relationship. Have you ever seen a precious relationship happening and someone's pride has broken it? Have you felt the tragedy of that? You just go, back off, you idiot. Just go away. Just go away. Don't come in and break this relationship. This is too precious. But it happens. Listen to what Mark has said about this relationship between the father and the son. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Listen to this. And a voice came from heaven. Who said this, do you reckon? You're my son. Who said it? The father. You are my one, beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. You know how we'd say that? I'm so proud of you, son. I am so proud of you. I am so, and I love you so much. You go to John, the book of John, the gospel of John, it tells you about the love between the father and the son. It says the father loves the son. And he's given all things into his hand. What about this one? For the father, John 5.20, for the father loves the son. What does the father do because he loves him? Well, he just shows him everything that he's doing. And this one. John 15.9, as a father has loved me, so I've loved you. How did God love you? How did Jesus love you? Sorry? Yeah. He died a brutal death on a Roman cross because he loved you. Now, can you even plumb the depths of how much that God loves you? I can't. I mean, Ephesians 3 says you can't. None of us can. I can't. No one can. It's unknowable. That's how deep it is. And what's Jesus saying? He's saying, actually, my father loves me the same way that I love you. That is intense. Now, if you're not getting this yet, the nature of this relationship, I just want to show you a story of a father's love for his son. And uh, I've shown it here once before, but you can watch it again if you've seen it before, because I think it's meaningful and it's helpful. As parents, it's a primal instinct to fight like hell, to do anything we can to protect our kids. But you have to wonder how you'd react in an extreme case like this. Two weeks ago, 15-year-old Andrew Lindop was out for an early morning surf with his dad, Charles. Literally, out of the blue, a two-and-a-half-metre great white attacked young Andrew, tearing his leg apart. It must have been truly terrifying. And God knows what would have happened if Charles hadn't been there. He put himself between Andrew and the shark and coaxed his boy to safety. As you'll see, it's an amazing tale of courage, devotion and a father's fierce protective love. So he's shouting out to you, shark, I've been bitten. What did you shout back to him? Uh, you're all right. Paddle. You know, paddle as hard as he can. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a hard story to tell, isn't it? Us saying, you know, paddle, Andy, paddle. But you're all right, you're all right. You know, paddle. 
Imagine the horror for a father. 100 metres from shore, his boy's blood staining the water. No way of knowing how badly he was hurt. And worse, the terrifying prospect that the shark was coming back. The, the things that were running through my mind uh, were, um, you know, why Andrew, why not me? You know, it's just simply not fair. Well, you know, I don't want it to be my son. You know, why the hell could it have gone for me and not for him? Um, and all I wanted to do is get him in as fast as I could. And I'm just paddling to him as fast as I can, and I'm saying to him, paddle to me, you know, be all right. And it's just, you know, shoving him on a wave and paddling as hard as I can to catch up with him. So Dad's pushed you in, and he's put himself between you and... Well, he thought the shark was. It's a pretty brave act. Yeah, it's good. I don't know. I don't know if he didn't, then I don't even. He might have actually scared the shark away again, or I don't know what it would have, what it would happen if he didn't. So he's pretty proud of you, but I'm proud of him. Yeah. Throughout all of this, Andrew's composure was absolutely yeah. incredible, and and that's what I'm in awe of, you know. He's just an amazing kid. He really is. He's just an amazing kid. And you did an amazing job too. I just did what a dad had to do, you know. I'm, I'm... Fortunately, I had a level of training, but I, you know, I defy any dad out there not to do the same thing. So, you know, you, you love your children. Uh, it's just absolutely overwhelming in situations like that. I don't know what would happen if he wasn't there. Because usually I don't surf with dad, I just surf by myself or... There would be someone else out there who would drive by myself. But on that morning, you were with your dad. With dad. Very lucky. God. You're more than lucky, aren't you? Yeah, because like one in 50 surfs I have with him. Is that true? Yeah. For all the surfs to have with your dad, this was the one. With the shark, yeah. It's going to be in my head. It's not going to happen to me again, but it could happen to someone else. You feel a bit immune now. It can't happen yeah. to you twice. I do. It's a fantastic moment for this father and son. Just seeing the surf and feeling the sea breeze is the best therapy for them right now. Yeah, I, I love this. <laughs> that is great to be down here, you know, down the beach again with him. That dad loves his kid, doesn't he? And do you know his kid really loves him too? Like crazy, like emotionally crazy, they love each other. That is like what your and my pride has broken. See, on the cross, Mark 15:34, it says that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, in this story, what happened is the tenants got proud and it busted a precious relationship. Because when you and I get proud, when we sin, when humanity sinned, it busted a relationship. It busted a relationship that was incredibly precious. You see, sin is when the servant puts themselves in the king's place. And when the servant puts themselves in the king's place, the only possibility to get out of that trouble is that the king would put themselves in the servant's place. And the king putting themselves in the servant's place means that the relationship between the father and the son 
gets broken. See, some of you know this. Some of you know the tragedy that happens when pride breaks relationships. Some of you know the trouble that's actually caused in your houses. Some of you have got kids that come up and they make it all about them in the house. And when they make it all about them, what's actually happening is they're putting pressure on the relationship between the husband and the wife at that point. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? There's pressure on it. And if they work hard enough and if they're proud enough and they're persistent enough, what they'll do is they'll create a conflict and a breach in the relationship between the husband and the wife. See, this is what pride does. It breaches relationships. It creates a breach in relationships. Number three, you want to finish off on a good note? Do you know there's a really good note in this parable? Do you know there's a really good note? And that's this one. God's indomitable providence. What does indomitable mean? Impossible to subdue or defeat. Listen to this. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. This is the son. What will the owner of the vineyard do? It's a good question. Well, he'll come and destroy the tenants. What's he going to do? He's going to give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? Listen to this. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, maybe the keystone. Listen to this. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvellous in our eyes. You see, the Old Testament Jews were in charge. They didn't fulfil their duty. They neglected the sheep. They put themselves in the centre. They fed themselves. And what is happening here in the death of this son is the subversion of pride. You know what subversion is? Subversion, I read in one dictionary definition, is when you turn something on its head in a sneaky way. (laughs) Now, who knows that that's what God does? God turns things on the head in sneaky ways all the time. Now, this week I was talking to someone and they're the victim of someone else's sin and it's a very grievous sin. Someone has hurt them very, very badly. And I said, you know what's actually happened is you had something good and this person twisted it. But do you know what God does? He twists it again. He subverts it. And that's the great hope is it doesn't matter actually what happens in your life Whatever gets twisted is that God's going to twist it again and he's going to do something really fancy with it. Does that mean that it's not evil? No, it doesn't. The most evil act in the history of this universe is that we killed God. That doesn't change. But God has this way of taking something that's evil, something that's brutal, something that's treacherous and terrible and twisting it again and doing something with it. There's always hope. Let me ask you this question. Who do you think in this parable is the hero? Who is it? Who? Maybe the dead son? Anyone else want to have a tilt? Maybe the owner? Yeah, I mean, you could, you could make a good case for the dead son. But in, in another sense, the landowner is really the hero, isn't he? He's the one that sends his son. And I think the fact that he sends his son and he sends numerous people, doesn't that tell you something about his love? You see, what farmer in their right mind would send people to tenants like this without a police escort, without a taser or a Glock, all right? 
You're just not going to do it. But he keeps sending people in there and then he sends his beloved son to them. And you know what I think this tells you about is this speaks to the indefatigable love of God. It's a big word. What does it mean? His love doesn't get tired. It never gets tired. He never has to, in love, just go, you know, I mean... If you ever watch a rugby game, forwards do that, right? Everyone's just tired and then all of a sudden one of them's got a hammy complaint, you know? And then two minutes down the track, they're all good. All right, we can pack this big scrum down and it's all good. What are they doing? They say, just give the team a breather. God's love never needs a breather. The son goes as the father's representative with the father's authority to the father's property to claim the father's due and he gets killed and the killing of the son rather than stopping the father's plan gets subverted. It becomes the point of the father's plan. You see, the son in being killed fulfills his mission. You see that? See, pride was like, we're going to get rid of you. And that's what humanity did with Jesus. It's like, we're going to get rid of you. (laughs) And God's going, you're getting rid of me. I'm going to subvert that. And I'm going to make that the focal point that's going to change history. See, the existence of the vineyard. You see in this? the providence in this the existence of the vineyard isn't dependent upon the tenants it's dependent upon the owner and the self-sacrifice of the son now God doesn't need you you need him he doesn't need you but he loves you and he'll keep telling you to turn to him and he'll keep telling you to ask forgiveness from him. He'll keep telling you to trust in him and the death of his son on the cross. That's the hope for you. 